and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Clara Biddles. Hello. So this week we are covering Luca Guadagnino's beautiful romantic horror movie, Bones and All, which came out in 2022. Taylor Russell stars as a teenage runaway with a compulsive hunger for human flesh, searching for her long-lost mother in a dreamy road trip across the Midwest. Timothy Chalamet co-stars as her love interest, a fellow flesh eater who she meets on the road. So this was lovely, and I'm very happy that you are my guest host this week because you are the premier expert in Timothy Chalamet. Um, that's true. That is proven and an objective view. I'm also a massive Luca Guadagnino fan, which obviously the two go hand <laughs> in hand. There's a lot of overlap. Like, yeah, I love Luca Guadagnino. I've seen most of his films and enjoyed them all. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I'm so glad I was I was saying this to you before we started recording, but I'm so glad that you also loved this film because I had such a such a visceral reaction to it when I saw it first in the cinema. And like loved it so much that, but it made me feel like, will anybody else love this? Is it just tied to my soul? So I'm very glad that you all. I mean, what what was your reaction? I was watching it and I was like two thirds in and I was almost thinking, do I even, am I even into this? Is this even working for me? And then about the kind of 10 minutes at the end, I was just like full body sobbing. I just... It was a lot. That's art. That's art. And I'm sure Luca would be thrilled to hear that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we should give some intro to Luca Guadagnino, who I'm sure we both have a lot of thoughts on. <laughs> yeah, so he is an Italian filmmaker, or at least that's how he is described if you Google him, although he kind of has a very international upbringing in Ethiopia and other places, and he kind of doesn't really think of himself specifically as Italian. Born in 1971, his first movie was a crime thriller called The Protagonist in 1999, but I feel like the point where he really came onto the radar of like bigger audiences was I Am Love in 2009, which is this sprawling, epic romantic drama um, starring Tilda Swinton as like the matriarch of this family. And it's a very food-based film, so I love it. And it's a film mm-hmm. that he and Tilda Swinton collaborated on behind the scenes for years. He's a very collaborative director. And she learned Italian, so she played Italian in it, which is a great Tilda moment. And then after <laughs> that, he made A Bigger Splash, which uh, stars several kind of English-speaking actors in English. And then obviously Call Me By Your Name, which was his huge mainstream breakout outside of Italy. And a film that I deeply love as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So much so that me and my friend and your friend, Sarah Dollard, went on holiday to the locations of the film in 2018. (laughs) incredible. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, like, when Call Me By Your Name came out, I'd seen I'm Love and A Big Splash and then saw all his kind of subsequent films. But when I got really obsessed with Call Me By Your Name, I went back and watched the kind of feature films before he'd made I Am Love. And they are like all pretty garbage. <laughs> okay, that, that is kind of what I was going to ask you. Because like I've seen his famous movies and I was like, is this a thing where there is undiscovered gems? And no. it's like, sometimes there isn't. Sometimes you have to get the training wheels on first. Yeah. And then after that, you get amazing movies starring very famous, beautiful people. Yeah, exactly. His first film, The Protagonist, which you mentioned, is also starring Tilda Swinton. And it's an interesting exercise, but it's very, because it's this kind of like, sort of true crime mockumentary kind of thing with Tilda Swinton in it. And it's, yeah, it's interesting, but has, apart from Tilda Swinton, pretty much nothing to do with the rest of the films that he'd make. And then he made a couple of these, like, really crap, sordid, erotic dramas, but really bad, like, really kind of cheap Euro erotic film type thing. (laughs) And (laughs) one of them was, like, really this massive sensation in Europe or whatever. I can't remember what it's called. Melissa P. Yeah, that's it. Oh God, I could barely... Which has... When you when you look at the Wikipedia for the page for this film, you can tell from the poster that it came out in 2005. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's so rubbish. But yeah, you're right. It's like some people just hit a moment and then they're in their stride and they've got their vibe and they're sticking with it and it's going to be brilliant. And he is definitely one of them. 
also interestingly he's also done interior design and like yeah I mean he's he's a very good cook apparently he's like a like, practically trained chef which it makes sense because like he is a big food filmmaker although in yeah. this case a far more <laughs> a, a very different style of food but yeah he, it's like when I was reading this interview it's like he has an architecture studio mm-hmm. and I was so amused by this as a side project for an auteur yeah. right because it's like I'm sure he does have really good input on architecture because his movies are really beautiful and like he works with production designers very closely on, you know, his his Suspiria remake is clearly like they've built a lot of interesting sets for that stuff. But also architecture is famously like one of the most difficult professions. (laughs) You literally train as long as you do to be a doctor to be an architect. It's a seven year educational process to become a first year architect and like 90% of the trainees drop out because it's so difficult. So I'm like, yeah. You're not doing any architecture, Luca. Like you, can't, you, <laughs> you can't are the face it. of an architecture. It's kind of like he has a perfume brand and like someone <laughs> else is making the perfume. <laughs> yeah, you can't really self-train because it's a lot of like maths. Maths <laughs> and like law and like <laughs> it feels very chic, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He's incredibly European. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because this is such a kind of American movie in terms of its lineage and and stuff like that. Yeah. It really made me think of Badlands a lot. I've not actually seen Bonnie and Clyde, but it's in that lineage because it's these two kind of criminal lovers, boy and a girl, and they're in all these empty landscapes. And you cited my own private Idaho, which I know is a fave of yours, but I actually have not seen. Oh my God. Well, maybe we should do it for the pod. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It really, really made me think of my own private Idaho, just in terms of, I guess we'll get into it with the themes and stuff, but thematically, but as well as, I guess that's in the same lineage as Badlands, where it's like these landscapes and this, this couple meandering through and, it's showing you as much, you know, like that corny thing where it's like the setting is as much a character as the characters, but like it's that kind of road movie. So before we kind of move on, I'll give just a bit more intro to this film. It's based on a young adult novel by Camille DeAngelis, um, which I believe you've read. Yes, I have read. And I thought it was interesting that a comparison with Call Me By Your Name is that it's another adaptation of a book that is very much about the very particular interiority of a young person and very much about what they're feeling and very much about their kind of thought processes and transferring it to something visual and something that feels much more universal. There's a lot of differences with the book but I feel like much like with Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino is so good at capturing the like vibe and the feeling of something and I think that's captured really really well. Yeah, I mean, he has done multiple coming-of-age stories now. Like, I've not mm-hmm. seen his TV series that came out in 2020, which is We Are Who We Are. That's a coming-of-age story about teenagers in Italy. And he's definitely making kind of adult films, but they're adult films that teenagers can watch, if you get me. Yeah. Call Me By Your Name obviously had a massive response from younger viewers and turned Timothy Chalamet into this huge star. Um, when I was talking about this movie with Morgan, who hasn't watched it yet, she was just like... He is like the one genuine movie star of his generation. Like yeah. it's basically him and Zendaya, uh, which <laughs> yeah. makes Dune a very interesting yeah, phenomenon because yeah, yeah, it's totally. like, he is this incredible actor. But the thing that really jumped out to me while watching this is that he's always Timothy Chalamet, yeah. even though he's also a really good actor yeah. and he's not playing to type, which is a kind of trifecta of factors as a performer, which is very rare when you're mm-hmm. always recognisable, even when you're playing quite different roles. You're not someone who only performs the same thing. Yeah. But he is the secondary lead of this. The main lead is actually Taylor Russell, who is incredible. She's so fucking good. And basically the reason why she's not enormously famous is because this film wasn't particularly commercially successful. Mm. Because she is amazing in this. She got great notices. Um, She's actually older than she seems. She's now 28, but she looks very young in this. Like she does look like she's 18 or slightly younger. But her kind of past work is she was in the Netflix show Lost in Space, which <laughs> I did not watch, despite the fact that it literally stars Toby Stevens, the god of Black Sails, who is one of my favourite <laughs> actors. I was just like, I can't face Lost in Space. Um, but her her big breakout role was in the indie drama Waves in 2019, which got great reviews. I've not seen it, but it stars her and Calvin Harrison Jr. and Lucas Hedges and Alexa Dimi. So it's a very Gen Z indie drama mm. and Luca Guadagnino saw her in that and was like please come and audition for 
this cannibal movie I'm making. Mm. <laughs> and she is tremendous in it. And like, I say the reason why she isn't famous from this is because people didn't watch the film. Because genuinely, like you could tell in the press tour to this that they were making an effort to promote her. You know, it's mm. not one of these situations where it's someone who was only being seen as like, oh, she's an indie actress. Like she was wearing these incredible eye-catching oh outfits through a press tour, so standing cool. next to one of the most famous actors of her generation. So it's like, they were genuinely marketing her and it's too bad that that didn't really push her forward. But I am sure she is being offered a lot of interesting roles off the back of this if there's, you know, among independent filmmakers at any rate. Yeah. And I hope she doesn't end up on another Netflix show because she is really just tremendous in this. She has this wonderful energy that Luca Guadagnino described her as feral. Mm. And in a lot of instances, I can imagine a white European director saying that about a black actress would be incredibly offensive and disgusting. <laughs> but like in the context he describes her like that, it's very respectful and kind of talking about like her performance style and her naturalism. So I would not classify that as creep European director behavior. <laughs> One is always on the eye for always that. Always on the lookout, yeah. <laughs> but it seems like they genuinely had a great relationship and she loved making this movie. Mm. So. I think she's got such a, maybe not similar, but like complimentary energy to Timothy Chalamet, which is, yeah, it's that like slight kind of off the rails weirdness, which is so odd with their like, because they're both very beautiful people and, but they've both got this willingness to like really go for it and really like kind of get into the kind of viscera of performance and and show the kind of ugly weird side of life and yeah. self. He's extremely high energy, like he moves mm. a lot. He's also very good at adolescent body language, even though mm. he's obviously like 25 at this point. And because he's so skinny, like you notice the way he moves much mm. more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Such an inspired pairing. I mean, obviously, part of Timothy Chalamet's movie star thing is that he's extremely charismatic and would probably have chemistry with a lot of people. But <laughs> I think the chemistry here is so perfect for this kind of, like, sad, desperate energy that this couple have. Yeah, we should kind of just t start talking about the story in a minute, yeah. but I just want to shout out the uh, the screenwriter, David Kaganich. He's a longtime Guadagnino collaborator, specifically for like horror projects. So he did Suspiria, but I think of him as the co-showrunner of the TV series, The Terror. One of my favourite topics is the desperate polar explorers horror TV show. <laughs> that makes sense for you. <laughs> the intriguing thing about this movie is I, I really didn't know what to expect because I hadn't even watched the trailer and uh, Claire sent it to me and I forgot to watch the trailer literally before recording this podcast <laughs> but um, I went in just knowing it was a cannibal romance and I knew I could trust Luca Guadagnino <laughs> but I watching it I was like this isn't necessarily cannibals I would mm. actually classify it more as ghouls or a type of vampire because yeah. the premise is that these characters it's not that they're like, I want to eat human flesh. They are kind of a different humanoid creature. Like they have to eat human flesh because when it starts, we meet the protagonist, Marin, as a teenager in 1980s Virginia. And she goes to a sleepover and she has this really kind of sweet, nervous little homoerotic moment with another girl there where you think she's going to suck her finger and then she like bites it. And this immediately sets off this chaotic series of events where she runs home to her father and um, you see that she's living in poverty and she and her father immediately know that they have to leave town. And it's clear that they've done this multiple times. And um, shortly after this, her father, who is played by the wonderful Andre Holland, best known for Moonlight, he abandons her and leaves her with a cassette tape, basically with his goodbye letter, which kind of provides narration explaining the history of her killing and eating other human beings from the age of three. So it's clear that like she is a kind of supernatural creature. And then this puts her on the road in this like really difficult situation where she's this lone teenage girl, but she very quickly meets another cannibal who is referred to in the narrative as an eater. And this kind of gives her the exposition required to understand that there is this whole subculture of people who consume human flesh all over America. And she meets a couple of others along the way, but it's like they can smell each other and... They can survive on human food, but like after a few months, you will have to eat a person. And obviously this is like a really awful moral situation to be in. And it also means that it makes it very difficult for you to live any kind of normal life. And you can imagine that like another version of this film would have rich people who are, who have the means to like 
protect themselves from legal repercussions and that sort of thing. And it's a very kind of different movie thematically and aesthetically. But this is a movie about like working class drifters on the edges of society. So she is on the run. This is where she meets Timothy Chalamet's character, who is another eater. And they kind of go on the road together and very gradually fall in love. But the first guy she meets is this very weird, very creepy older man named Sully, who is played by Mark Rylance, one of my favourite actors in the world. I don't feel like he's misunderstood because everyone knows that he is fucking incredible, like who (laughs) knows about actors, but he's in this weird position where he is this superstar on the British stage, but most of the movies he's made are not very good (laughs) yeah like he's done i would say the vast majority of movies including the one he won an oscar for if i recall correctly he won an oscar for like some stupid thriller or something was it bridge of spies bridge of spies yeah who's watched bridge of spies since 2016 stupid like dad movie but like and then (laughs) then he did like the bfg he's in fucking ready player one and it's it's mystifying but this is the movie which finally really gives him his due as a character actor like i'm sure there's others but like i was just stunned by him in this because like he is so real and so disturbing because the dynamic of when he meets marin is so recognisable as like a young woman or indeed like a teenage girl meeting a really unsettling guy in a public place and not really being able to escape without being so rude that it might offend him in a way that could lead to violence. But also she does need his help because like this is the only person she's ever met who can explain to her what her situation is. So you end up in this deeply uncomfortable scene where she follows him to this house, which we very quickly infer is not his house and he has done something to the occupant potentially so like he is explaining to her all about the process of being an eater and then he takes her upstairs and she sees that there is this woman this elderly woman in the process of dying very slowly on the floor so he is going to eat her when she dies and this is kind of presented as like the slightly more moral option than being a serial killer and killing people but he is also just like so creepy and weird and he has this like giant rope, which is his collection oh, of human hair so from all the people he's eaten. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> he's so strange. And he's got this interesting outfit where he's got this kind of little scraggly ponytail and this waistcoat with hundreds of pockets full of stuff. It's just a fantastically well-observed character. Yeah. And Mark Rylance is so good at it in terms of like his, his like facial movements and... His voice is very interesting because he has, obviously he can project incredibly well because like he has performed at Shakespeare's Globe, which is like an outdoor theatre. Like I've seen him (laughs) there, he's amazing. But he also can have this sort of weird reedy voice and it just works fantastically well. And also it's interesting to see someone who like comes off as like potentially very physically frail who also seems physically threatening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good role for a stage actor because it's got he's it's all about presence and about yeah. like you were saying about the kind of voice control and stuff like that and it comes up again later and she tells him to stop calling himself Sully because he's always talking about himself in the third person yeah. which is also another like creepy element. It's this thing where it's like she has no choice but to believe him in what he's saying, because he's saying like, you know, that he doesn't kill people and that he's doing this all in the moral way and stuff. Even though everything that about his presence is telling a, a different story, but she's got no choice. And yeah, like you were saying, it's it's such a familiar setting, even though it's this supernatural, unbelievable kind of context, you recognise that. And there's a bit... The next morning she kind of gets away before he's woken up. She's like she stays at this house, but she gets away and gets on the bus. But you see her driving around the corner on the bus and she looks out the window and he's like at the end of the driveway, stood on this ledge, kind of staring at her. And it's, again, that really familiar feeling of like seeing somebody again and being like, oh God, I've got away, but they've seen me and they know where I'm going. And yeah. And all of their scenes together is kind of couched in this, he has the plausible deniability where it's like he could be helping her. Yeah. But if he was really concerned about the idea of her feeling threatened, he would be behaving in a different way. So he's eccentric enough that like, it doesn't seem like he's necessarily being threatening on purpose. And then you're like, okay, actually he is. Yeah. Yeah. Another really great porting performance that I wanted to highlight 
is another eater that they meet on the road who is played by Michael Stolberg. Yes, Stolberg! king! (laughs) (laughs) Literally, whenever I find out that Michael Stolberg is in anything, because he's such a classic character actor who turns up for like 10 minutes. He never loses. Although, Claire, (laughs) this does mean you're endorsing Doctor Strange, (laughs) which he is in. (laughs) Unfortunately, even the greats miss sometimes with their choices. But I'm also happy for Michael Stolberg to get a, get a check. So yeah, he can get yeah. that Marvel cast. In between his numerous performances is like the third most important character in other films. <laughs> he is so good though. He is the dad in Call Me By Your Name, obviously, which is just a heartbreaking performance. Just delightful. So this is like such an interesting nod to that because obviously it's reuniting him with Timothy Chalamet and everybody knows about the scene in Call Me By Your Name specifically at the end where where he's giving him this kind of speech, all of this advice, um, and it's absolutely heartbreaking and beautiful. And that is kind of turned on its head, that dynamic in this film, where they're kind of trying to stay, some, they're kind of parking somewhere for the night. And Michael Stolberg and this other creepy guy pull up and they're kind of like, oh, we just thought you'd want to share some beers with us in a way where they're like, well, we can't refuse now. And obviously, because eaters can smell each other, they both know that they're the same. Yeah. And also I should add that like Stilberg is almost unrecognisable in this scene because obviously it's like filmed kind of partially in the dark around the fire, but also he's got this long hair and he's basically dressed like someone from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like he... (laughs) is in this sort of stereotypical, like, dangerous hick outfit with just overalls with no shirt underneath and he's really dirty. It's so creepy. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is a very, it's like the one piece of imagery in the movie which is just, like, straight up sort of American horror cliche, whereas everything else is a lot more artsy. But it's this really interesting dynamic because he's he's gross in, like, a very different way from Sully, Mark Rylance. And they have this little sitting around the fire situation where Marin, the protagonist, is clearly grossed out. Timothy Chalamet's character, Lee, is a lot better at interacting with these guys, but um, he also like has good survival instincts, so he is cautious. But then these two adult men, Stobark's character is an eater and is just gleefully talking about how great it is to just eat human flesh. And then it turns out his partner is just a normal human who is a cannibal fetishist. <laughs> which is just hilarious it's such a funny dynamic i was like oh wow we're really we're really getting in there huh <laughs> that's when he introduces the uh the concept of the title because he's like oh he's yet to do the whole bones and Timothy Chalamet is like what because like obviously he's been like training this guy up or something to like eat people even though it's this compulsion for them he's somehow able to to kind of coach this guy into being a cannibal. He's like, oh yeah, he's still yet to eat the whole bones. And Timothy Chalamet's like, what? And then he says the title of the film in the film, which I love it. He's like, oh yeah, bones and all, you'll love it. There's before bones and all and after bones and all. And it's like said to be this, like obviously they leave the bones usually and it's said to be this like transcendent experience. And it's like, it's clear then that they've met somebody who isn't, repulsed by this thing that they're made to do it's like a classic kind of vampire film thing it was interesting that you mentioned vampires because it is more like that because it's like they've met somebody who's like gleefully doing it yeah i just don't see it as a cannibalism movie yeah because kind of the definition of cannibalism is that you're the same yeah and they're not the same even though like emotionally they are humans yeah but they have powers yeah and they have hungers that aren't human yeah. Which makes it interesting kind of allegorically because there's a lot of kind of ways you can look at this in terms of just like coming of age stuff and queerness because like this is a queer film even though the protagonists are like a male-female pairing obviously like Timothy Chalamet's character is queer and like there was all this stuff going on thematically and Luca Guadagnino is a gay director so like obviously. Uh, <laughs> and also <laughs> things to do with class and the idea of these people being outside of mainstream middle-class American society. But you can say that of loads of different people who, you know, people who are drifters for whatever reason and are, like, judged by mainstream society and the idea of, like, being a criminal. But obviously it's the law that's making you a criminal. Like, that's not a moral distinction or identity. You know, they don't have any choice but to break the law in order to survive and that doesn't make them bad people, which is kind of this classic American road trip 
movie type thing. It's interesting that you bring up Timothy Chalamet's character's queerness, because I remember there being a big stushy, not even a big stushy because this film wasn't seen enough for there to be a big stushy, but there was some chatter online about this scene where Timothy Chalamet does like a honey trap killing of this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of this gay guy at a fairground. They're on a ride and they're like kissing and then Marin goes, I'm hungry, Lee. <laughs> so he's like, right, let's find somebody to kill so that we can feed. And he sees this guy who's operating one of the kind of attractions at the fairground and sort of lures him in, meets him after the fairground's closed and they're kissing, making out and he's giving him a hand job, and then as the guy's about to come, slits his throat. <laughs> I'm laughing because it, the timing on it is like very kind of tragicomic. Watching it again, I realised how strange that scene is because obviously he's doing it so that they can feed on him, but it's not like he's kissing the guy and then he slits his throat. It's like they're fully having sex and then he slits his throat. And then Marin's also watching them from the distance and he kind of has to beckon her over before she comes over. And the way that she's watching them is, again, this great performance from Taylor Russell, the way that she's watching them, you're not sure whether she's feeling repulsed by it or feeling like slightly aroused by it. I mean, the interesting detail is there was no sense of there being any concern about infidelity. Yeah, yeah, none, none. In a classic absence of media literacy, Twitter way, everybody was like, oh, um, it's homophobia because like he's he's luring this guy away to kill him and they're a straight couple and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, listen, guys. <laughs> it's not like Timothy Chalamet isn't also enjoying this. Like, yes, exactly. he's killing people. But also it's like famed homophobic filmmaker looking yeah. Guadagnino. <laughs> Like, I'm sorry to say this is a horror film. It is a queer horror film. Yeah. The obvious comparison to me, right, would be, I don't know if you've seen the two It movies. Yes. I watched the second one because Xavier Delan's in it and he dies before the credits. Well, this is literally what I'm talking about because, like, it opens with Xavier Delan, famous queer filmmaker and also occasional actor, playing a one-scene character whose job is to get gay bashed in the opening <laughs> sequence. And now that, that is a homophobic Yeah, death. exactly. <laughs> homophobic towards me and my friend who had to go and see that film and then had to sit through three hours of absolute nonsense. And that's a fairground as well, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. it's like, it immediately just made me think of that, right? When I was watching, I was watching, thinking at the back of my mind, sort of like, I bet there was discourse about this and I'm glad I didn't have to care oh about God, it. But yeah. um, even if it was like main characters who were straight. I feel like Luca Guadagnino, he's not, he's just not making a homophobic film. But also, <laughs> Timothy Chalamet's identity and like gender presentation are mm -hmm. a very clear through line in the film. Mm -hmm. Because the way they style him is intentionally very non-conformist. We meet him, he's got like pink dyed mullet hair. And at one point, someone calls him a homophobic slur. And toward the end when he's got a new outfit like he's wearing women's clothing and there's a great quote that I read in an analysis of the costumes which are designed by Julia Piersanti who did costumes for several of Luca's films and is just wonderful but this quote I found really interesting it says the wardrobe of loose floral dresses slouchy t-shirts and shredded denim feels slightly out of place for the 1980s which is when the film is set but the costume designer is sending a message by not dressing Lee and Marin in the bold colours, parachute pants or puffed shoulders that were mainstream at the time. It's clear they're the kind of misfits who were the originators of the grunge aesthetic before it became commodified by people who could afford non-ripped denim but want to dress like they couldn't. And that's just a really great comparison to me. I love the 1980s aesthetic of this, which we should talk about yeah. now, probably. But also it kind of, it really acknowledges the fact that gender nonconformity was a part of that early yeah. grunge aesthetic in a way that is being completely erased by yeah. modern kind of views of that. Because, you know, Kurt Cobain was seen as mm -hmm. effeminate and was the target of homophobic slurs. Mm -hmm. And that is like baked into his origin story as a superstar and now it's kind of as it often happens with like every single trend has morphed into something far more heteronormative absolutely and that is absolutely what's happening here like they are because they don't have any money they're wearing the same outfits for most of the film but they do look very distinct from the people around them 
And they do also have this thing like that you often get in with like young couples, both in real life and in media, where they're wearing clothes that have a certain aesthetic overlap. Yeah. It almost looks like they're sharing clothes. Yes. But they don't they don't swap clothes during the film, but you can kind of get that sense. And yes. there's a lot of gender nonconformity with her costumes as well. There's a lot of times where she's wearing like sort of a big shapeless jacket but that's kind of in that way where it's like that's probably what was just a hand or maybe she like an undershirt and no bra kind of thing yeah yeah and there's a bit where yeah he's called a homophobic slur by his sister and it kind of drives him into this like he gets really angry and really you can tell that he's mad at himself and he has a bit of a moment but then kind of towards the end when he sees his sister again he's like more audaciously wearing this like floral shirt that is very clearly a women's cut shirt so it's like he's also going through this like internalized shame about what he's having to wear which like we saw in the quote that you read out is as much about class and about need and about not being able to afford clothes as it is about gender nonconformity. so it's all these kind of like overlapping areas of shame for him which also are all things that are analogous of him being an eater yeah i mean this film obviously is visually gorgeous and the the thing that just jumped out to me so much when i watched it was how much it felt like watching a film that could have literally been filmed in the late 1980s (laughs) i mean at the moment pop culture is completely saturated with 80s nostalgia in a way that i find annoying and ahistorical and distasteful like Mm -hmm. guardians of the galaxy or stranger things is the pinnacle you know but it's because we've got this generation of filmmakers who remember the 80s and want to make nostalgia films for an audience of people who either remember the 80s or are surrounded by 80s influenced pop culture right (laughs) and it's mostly terrible and this is fascinating to me because the way it's shot there were some shots in it which just like tickled a part of my hindbrain that was just like oh this is like watching a film from 1988 like there's at one point where he like zooms into a house and I was like you don't get that kind of zoom anymore it's like a horror movie zoom from Uh you know but also the styling of the extras is incredible it it could be a documentary you know it's all filmed on location obviously and all these um just like random little road stops in the midwest but um you have all these characters in the background who look completely normal these sort of unattractive extras with really bad 80s hair yeah I was <laughs> wearing say clothes about that. like with the bad hair there's so much bad hair of a so type that you look like is not replicated in hardly any 80s style films now because they all want to do like the cool sexy hair that a celebrity mm-hmm. would have plus like the modern skincare and hair care of a modern <laughs> celebrity which is not what people look like in reality yeah. and obviously because it's like most of the people this film is revolving around are very poor you've got like a lot of very rundown sets and locations but also like with the main two characters taylor russell of course is very beautiful and the way they do her kind of hair and styling is fascinating because as you said like she is wearing these clothes which are just like kind of shapeless a lot of the time and she is wearing the same outfit for most of it because like she runs away from home with basically the clothes in her back but also like her hair is not really styled like she has this particular haircut for most of it and then there's points where her hair is like just completely frizzy and messy which is very rare to see for Mm. a leading lady in a film which I just thought was great yeah and it's if for me, another thing that I really enjoyed about the specific 80s-ness of it is that it feels specifically like end of decade. I love that it's 1989. And yes. it's like that awkward time between decades and between eras of, especially as we remember eras, like the 80s, the 90s. It's that time in between where everything feels a bit grey brown because it's because it's not one thing or yeah. the other and, and also like they're in places where the world isn't trendy like yeah. they're in places where like people do not have money people are not plugged into the top of pop culture yeah but also the main two characters are youth culture but also they don't know they it don't know it yet yeah and they're not and they're not interacting <laughs> with other young people yeah i find it really interesting when other young people come into it who aren't eaters like um Timothy Chalamet's sister, who is a really good character. <laughs> so I was, I was like astonished to look up Timothy Chalamet's sister and was like, holy shit, because she is Anna Cobb, an actress not famous enough to have a Wikipedia page, who is the lead actor 
of We're All Going yes. to the World's Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is this absolutely fascinating, intense, eccentric horror movie that came out in 2021. So she's literally been in two films. And she's amazing in both. Yeah. So like you should check out We're All Going to the World's Fair, which is about online radicalization and is also subtextually about gender and being trans. It's by a trans filmmaker. Um, But it's this very interesting and intriguing film about social media. And I did not recognize her in this at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's because she's going to be, I think, a fascinating actor. But I kind of had that like brain itch when I was watching this, where I was like, seen her, seen her face, seen her face. (laughs) But she is one of the only characters who looks like the 80s. Because she's like she's like a young high school student with all the hair and the outfits and a bunch of pals wearing the outfits, you know. And she's got like um like a Debbie Gibson t-shirt on or something. Like Yeah, I mean she doesn't look good. Like (laughs) (laughs) But she's got that kind of it's almost like you've come in from a set that's next to this set from a different film, but like in a really effective way because it really reminded me of being the only queer person in the family, and then there's somebody else, and then you're with all your queer pals and you're like, right, this is the world. And then somebody, you know, your sister comes in and you're like, oh, it's like this culture shock where you're like, the world isn't all like this. And it's such an effective use of, she's only in about two scenes, but it's a really effective use of this character where it's like, oh, this is, this is also going on at this time as well. I mean, she is literally the anchor that is attaching him to regular society because Marin obviously is all alone in the world. She's been abandoned by her father. She's trying to find herself. She's trying to find her mother, who we should talk about before we end the podcast. (laughs) And that's like her quest. But like her only sense of direction is trying to find her mother who abandoned her as a very young child. But he doesn't have this freedom to travel everywhere because he's always returning back home to see his sister and like teach her to drive and stuff. And we don't see his mother but it's clear that he's kind of semi-estranged from his mother and his father is dead. And um, I think we should talk about spoilers at this point for the final act, but we learn in the final act that his father was abusive and also an eater. And like, I think it's pretty clear that like he wound up eating his dad in a sort of self-defense move. But like, this means that he has kind of become this outcast in his town because like people thought that he might have murdered his father and this sort of thing. But he still has this link back. Whereas when... Marin goes to find her mother it's very different you know you're hoping you're rooting for her to find someone that might give her some closure or give her some kind of nurturing feeling but like you know that's not going to happen because you can guess pretty early on that her mother was also an eater and when she eventually finds her she's been institutionalized she is played by Chloe Sevigny in one of Chloe Sevigny's wide variety of bizarre character roles (laughs) it's like Yes, we know that you're friends with Luca Guadagnino. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and this woman is like very disturbed and like heavily medicated and has written a letter to her daughter to explain the situation. She has eaten her own hands, so she is like in an institution and has no hands. I found that scene maybe to be one of the only things that didn't work for me in the film. Yeah, I was like, I was like, this is I thought, kind of dated and schlocky. Yeah, it felt kind of sensationalist, whereas the rest of the film did didn't i mean no shade to my queen chloe but yeah i mean i kind of feel that for like almost any scene where anyone is institutionalized in any film you know (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it's very hard to do that properly but thankfully it's only like kind of a short bit but that's kind of a turning point for marin because then she kind of realizes that this thing that she's been looking for and hoping for and wanting answers isn't giving it going to give her the clarity that she wanted for me that's one of the most defining themes of the film and that's another reason why it really reminded me of my own private idaho because that's also a film about people who are holding on to the idea of love they're kind of queer people living this transient lifestyle and they are searching for answers and love is the answer that they're striving towards whether that is the love of family, so like her looking for her mother and Timothy Chalamet's sister, or whether that's so love from the past that's rooted in the past or the future. So like, oh, maybe you'll meet somebody. And and there's a really great line that I think is used for, as the tagline for the film that um, Michael Stolberg says in a kind of 
sneering way to Timothy Chalamet's character where he says, maybe love will set you free. Maybe. He says it in such a like sneering, knowing way where it's like he's so cynical and you kind of like, no, but maybe it will. Like, because <laughs> you're rooting for these crazy kids. But then I guess we'll go into spoiler zone now. At the end of the film, you see Lee and Marin kind of living this normal life. She's found a job. They're kind of living in this student accommodation because she's found a job at a university and everything's going well. There's got this like nice little domestic scene. And then Sully catches up with her again and climbs on top of her and is kind of, again, he's, it's really creepy. It's terrifying. You're scared for her and scared for yourself in times when this is reminding you of times that you've been in that situation where somebody's so physically close to you and it is a threat. I mean, it's shot so well. And like, it's, you really feel like there's size difference because Mm. Mark Rylance is not a physically imposing person by any means. And the movie kind of characterizes him as quite old. Yeah. You assume he's kind of about 60s, probably. But she is very petite and thin. And even Mm. though she is this kind of non-human vampire kind of person, they don't have super strength or anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Once he's on top of her, there's like no way she can physically fight him off. So she is trying to basically just be really gentle and like talk him out of doing anything too extreme. Mm. And then you see Timothy Chalamet is in the same room and he's kind of sneaking up behind him. And then there's this kind of like bloody showdown. They kind of suffocate him, drag him to the bath. It's like one of the like goriest moments in the film. And it's really gnarly and like, really good. I think that Luca Guadagnino is really a, a good horror gore director. Yes. <laughs> I mean, really, it's just like the DNA of Italian horror yeah, is just having yeah. buckets of blood. I mean, yeah. there's this fantastic quote in this interview with The Guardian, I'll leave in the show notes, where it says, kind of, when it comes to filming gore, Guadagnino makes it sound a very painterly business. And then the quote is, when you shoot a movie, you deal with the physical place. You have a room, that's the shape, the size, that's the material. So what happens if blood is sprinkled everywhere? I'm more interested in that and how it becomes an image. And the imagery in this scene and the immediate aftermath, which is like the final scenes of the film, there's shots which literally look like crime scene photos intentionally. And he also says in this interview, he was inspired by the artist Hermann Nitsch, who was an Austrian kind of mid 20th century, 1960s, 70s performance artist and painter who did this very extreme counterculture performance art, which involved, you know, blood and bloody orgies. Uh, You can Google him. Fascinating guy. Obviously highly controversial and I think arrested on several occasions due to the nudity and blood. I have seen performance artists in the modern day who are very clearly aping this kind of material. And I remember thinking at the time, this doesn't really work in the 21st century. Like we've seen films now. Um, (laughs) But his work also kind of, you know, if you immediately Google him, the first things that come up are paintings which have all this sort of blood spatter looking red imagery. So it's like, it very much is the kind of thing you see in a slasher movie but obviously Luca has a lot of influences that come from fine art I mean Mark Rylance's character is partially inspired by the artist Joseph Beuys who is another 1960s 70s German artist and performance artist he is literally styled after him so like there's a lot going on in this film in that regard and there's one of the posters for the film is painted by Elizabeth Payton who Luca Guadagnino collaborated with she's a amazing kind of current day kind of figurative painter and uh, Luca Guadagnino collaborated with after she'd done a painting of Elio and Oliver from Call Me By Your Name and that's that's a very beautiful uh, if you just google search it it's it's a very beautiful poster that is very kind of also really gets this sense of like gore and love and all these like visceral (laughs) kind of things that the film is dealing with. So after this crime scene has been established and after they've killed Sully, they're kind of on the floor getting their breath back and we realise that Lee has been stabbed by Sully in the chest and it's the real culmination of everything that the film is doing in terms of all of these very, very kind of gory images and gory feelings (laughs) because it's like... That it's literally blood and air spilling out of his lungs and their love for each other is like spilling out of them and he's about to die and she's like, I'll take you to the emergency room and he's like, no, eat me. And they basically have this 
conversation that you don't hear because the very beautiful uh, song by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross plays over it. Trent and Atticus did the score for the film, which is also very kind of Badlands and very kind of... A lot of acoustic guitar, which isn't something we necessarily expect from them. Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful soundtrack. Also reminded me of the kind of Raikudo Paris, Texas score a little bit as well. It's got a lot of that kind of feel to it. But um, this song plays over the end and yeah, we know that, that that's what's happened and that she has eaten him and... This was the part in the film where I said at the beginning that I had this like kind of primal reaction to this film. And this was the part where it just like absolutely kicked me in the teeth. Something about it. I don't even understand it so well and can't even really explain it so much in words. But I just think that Luca Guadagnino is such such an emotional filmmaker. But the emotion is so tangible and almost he makes that emotional almost physical which is why I think he's so good at making films about teenagers and young people because obviously that emotion is right at the front there and he just really knows how to do it in a way that I can't explain because that's why he's so good because he does it on film and it's something that you can't explain. For me the song as well is like about kind of finding somebody who felt like home to you and this kind of again the themes and the film about finding some sanctuary in this transient life. All of this kind of small disappointments of the film build up to this big disappointment at the end where it's like, you know, maybe love would set you free, but it's over. But it's also it's also complicated because she's eaten him. And one thing in the book that we don't get so much in the film is that she eats people that she loves and that she feels emotions towards. Okay. Which isn't really in the film. I don't think it really needs to be. So she first ate her babysitter because she felt affection towards her. And then she eats a couple of people who she has crushes on when she's younger and stuff like that. So it's kind of suggested that she does eat all of him, bones and all. And that is, in a way, like, the ultimate expression of love for her. You know, allegorically, it's all about first love and, like, first breakup. And, you know, this is her coming-of-age moment. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then it kind of cuts to this really beautiful shot of the two of them just sat on a hill where there's nobody else around and kind of holding each other and this really slow ending where it kind of lingers on them and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it's a gorgeous film. Like, it looks beautiful. There's all this magic hour cinematography. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any particular thoughts on the cinematography other than it's very beautiful. <laughs> but um, it's by Arseni Kachaturin, who um, immediately after this went on to work on The Idol uh, with The Weeknd on HBO, which sounds like a complete disaster. So he's having an interesting uh, mix of jobs <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> But obviously this was all shot on film and looks beautiful. I think that's us on Bones and All. Um, Obviously, we both loved it. Fantastic if you love character actors and a beautiful coming-of-age movie, which as a genre is actually one I I don't really like this genre as much as you. If I'm looking at like a film program and there's 400 movies, I usually just eliminate anything that's described as a coming-of-age movie if it doesn't involve like a vampire or something, you know? (laughs) I really highlight that. I'm really all like... Yeah, Ooh. yeah, that's, that's a big divergence between <laughs> But us. especially if it is a vampire as well. That's a crossover that we have. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say as well that I've longed for many years for Timothy Chalamet to play a vampire. And this is almost... Close. We're close. We're getting there. The Timmy girlies are going to get it. It will probably happen. I feel like he needs to play like a proper old school aristocratic vampire and june he's like an aristocratic goth who hates himself and this he's like a kind of vampire-ish he's getting there thing so yeah. we're getting there yeah i feel like i've really held myself back during this whole time so i just want to say that timothy Shelby is so beautiful in this film you want you want to cry his hair is just the kind of like grunge fuckboy hair that he has the faded out like pink highlights stunning and specifically for me his 
little skanky tattoos and his little skanky hand tattoos are so like I was glad to watch this again on DVD so that I could pause and just like really take it in. Yeah, you texted me being like, I'm documenting his hand tattoos. And I was just like, <laughs> Godspeed to Claire. <laughs> the thing that I love about being a Timothy Chalamet expert and enthusiast is that because he is such a film star, part of his appeal is that he's just like the most beautiful boy you've ever seen in your life. Like, and that is inextricable from his acting style and why he's so good in film. <laughs> I also love media coverage of him because it's extremely obvious why he's popular, but you'll get like film articles that just like don't understand the concept of yeah. a twink. <laughs> you know, which is just like this happens every 10 years. Like every generation has a superstar twink. Onto he's every just, generation he's just Leonardo is DiCaprio. A twink. <laughs> yes. Obviously he is a great actor as we have said, but yeah. Yeah, he's st- he's um I don't think we have selected what film you and I are going to discuss yet. No. I will update that later when we've kind of had a little debate over it. But next episode, Stefan will be back, the other co-host. Can I just say that I am really, I'm just going to give a shout out to Stefan right here because (laughs) I listened to the Jurassic Park episode and really, really enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you. Great analysis. I will pass on your regards if he doesn't (laughs) listen to this. I don't know if he will because I don't know if he's seen this one, but um. Yeah, last episode was Jurassic Park with Stefan Allen, my uh, comedian pal. And next episode with him will be The Exorcist. I definitely think that, because I was kind of saying to you as a joke, that there should be double bills of mine and Stefan's films. But I think that this would work really well with The Exorcist. (laughs) Jurassic Park is about the fear of being consumed and Bones and All is about the desire to consume people. So you've got like this kind of yin and yang situation. But yeah, The Exorcist next and you and I will then decide upon another film of some type. But yeah, as always, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com where there will be show notes for this episode. Tumblr, Overinvested Podcast, Twitter, Overinvested Pod, Instagram, Overinvested Podcast and crucially, Patreon, Overinvested Podcast where we have many uh, extra episodes. Morgan and I have released a new episode. It should be up by the time this podcast is released. We have reviewed various books together, um, discussing the books we've read recently, which as always is a diverse array of (laughs) books with no overlap between me and Morgan's tastes. Uh, We are very different, but great to talk to her. And um, of course, we have the back catalogue of film review episodes and stuff there and other Patreon content. So overinvested podcast at Patreon. Um, Claire, where can we find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ms. Claire Biddles and you can find me at Letterboxd at, I think it's just Claire Biddles. <laughs> you can search all the Timothy Chalamet films and see what I've got to say about all of them. Five stars, I Okay, so yeah, you can find me on Letterboxd and Tumblr at Hello Taylor, on Twitter, Stell at Hello underscore Taylor. Um, So yeah, thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.